Sisters and brothers, we are continuing this morning in our look at the book of Nehemiah. It has been a good journey, and uh, so I am uh, blessed to have been able to be a part of this. And uh, if you've not been around, um, um, I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, and so, um, I, you know, I don't have tons of time to be able to kind of describe everything to you. So just, um, you know, go back and listen to it. But the important things there, you got Nehemiah, you've got a wall that's being rebuilt uh, and you have the ups and downs and the challenges of that. We saw that a lot last week, uh, and we'll talk about that even more this week. And so uh, with that, let me just dive into Nehemiah chapter 5. Let me say right before I do that, at the end of the sermon, that we're going to be able to hear a testimony from somebody that's a little bit of, of, of sensitive nature, if you will. And so I don't really see any young kids here. I'll tell you that uh, at the 1030 service, I'll have my fifth grader stay in. I won't have my third grader stay in. So that's kind of, that's just me. You may think, well, Jerry's, you know, I don't know how, what kind of parent I am, but um, you can base it off of that. If you have someone young, I don't see a ton of young kids here, but if there is one, uh, when the testimony comes, um, you may want to have, you may want to go out with your child if you don't want to hear that. So, uh, so with that then, let me begin with Nehemiah chapter 5. It begins by this. Now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish kin. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. We must get grain so that we may eat and stay alive. There are also those who said, we are having to pledge our fields, our vineyards, and our houses in order to get grain during the famine. And there were those who said, we are having to borrow money on our fields and vineyards to pay the king's tax. Now our flesh is the same as that of our kindred. Our children are the same as their children. And yet we are forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have been ravished. We are powerless and our fields and vineyards now belong to others. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. And after thinking it over, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, you all are taking interest from your own people. And I called a great assembly to deal with them and said to them, As far as we are ab- we're able, we have bought back our Jewish kindred who have been sold to other nations. But now you are selling your own kin who must then be bought back by us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us stop taking this taking of interest. Restore to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the interest on money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, we will restore everything and demand nothing more from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them take an oath to do as they had promised I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out everyone from house and from property who does not perform this promise. Thus may they be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. 
The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took food and wine from them, besides 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. Indeed, I devoted myself to the work on this wall and acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 people, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations around us. Now that which was prepared for one day was one ox and six choice sheep. Also fowls were prepared for me, and every ten days skins of wine in abundance. Yet with all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because of the heavy burden of labor on the people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for this people. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we gather on this somewhat dreary day as it seems that autumn is finally upon us. And as we say so often, Lord, we are reminded in the changing of the seasons But so too does our own seasons of our own lives have their peaks and their valleys, their joys and their challenges. We certainly see that, Lord, in this story of Nehemiah. And so we pray yet again this week that you would take this story from long ago and open up our own eyes and ears and our hearts to what they might say to us this May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So one of the things that I've really liked uh, about our look at the book of Nehemiah is how realistic it is about the joys and the challenges of creating a vision and then creating a plan and then getting people to join your plan and then seeing it finally come to fruition. It's, it's quite realistic, right? I mean, there's not just kind of, it just go, doesn't go up and up and everything is just perf- picture perfect and there are no valleys and everything's just a peak and it's just Wonderful, And as I said last week, that's really important because I think there are far too many people who get a vision and, and maybe they think, oh, this is exactly what God wants me to do. And then as soon as they begin to meet resistance, they begin to question whether or not this was really what they were supposed to do. And when you begin to meet that resistance for the first time and you think, well, no, if this is what God wants, everything should go smoothly, then you will be inclined to just quit, to just stop. And one of the things that Nehemiah does is give us permission to see, no, 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 this is all just a part of the journey. And last chapter, of course, was full of those valleys, right? Again and again and again, it was difficult. Nehemiah kept meeting resistance and enemies and internally, all these people who were like, no, let's just quit. Remember, we're tired. We're, what was the word? I always like to see if we're pooped, right? As the message said. And and you know that finally Nehemiah kind of kind of clears that last hurdle, right? Or at least what he thinks is the last hurdle. And he's just like, thank God. We are done with that. Oh no. This is what happens, right? Just about the time you breathe a sigh of relief. All of a sudden, there's a knock on the door, there's a text, there's an email with the subject line that says trouble, and you say, do I open this or do I just put it in the trash? Have you guys 
Never done, I mean, I wouldn't do that for any of your emails, uh, but I've heard people do. Bad pastors. Uh, and so, all of a sudden then, there's more trouble. And this is no small trouble, right? We're told that there is an outcry. John Golden Gate points out that this word for outcry is the exact same word used for the blood of Abel when he cries out, when there is an outcry for justice after he has been killed by his brother Cain. It's the exact same word that's used for the Israelites when they are screaming out after the oppression and the slavery of the Egyptians. This is a deep Word. It's a deep word of woundedness and pain and death being desperate. There is an outcry. And why were the people crying out? Well, it can be a little confusing. So let me just quickly tell you there are three main groups, it seems. One of those groups is probably the people we talked about a couple chapters ago. The merchants, the goldsmiths, the perfumists. Remember how they were also rebuilding the wall? And if you're spending all this time rebuilding the wall, it means that you have no time to do what? Your actual job, right? Which means you're probably not making any Money, right? And so they're saying, hey, we have no food because of this great wall you have, Nehemiah, right? And then you have another group. Probably these are farmers. These are people who live further away from the wall. And, and, and what's happening now, of course, is that they're all building the wall, which means that they have no time to actually farm. You guys are good. See, so there's no, so you can't farm. Not only that, but there's also a famine, it seems, that's going on. And so the people then, the families of these people who are helping to rebuild the wall, they're going hungry. And then on top of that, you also have the massive taxation from the Persians, which is keeping them then from being able to have any money, it seems. And so they are starving in the midst of the rebuilding of the wall. And they are so hungry, we are told, that they are having to sell their own children to other families, to other people, their sons and their daughters. So when Nehemiah hears this, what does he do? We're told that he is angry. He's angry probably for multiple reasons, but one of them is because it seems, and this is what the, those who are crying out are saying, is that it's our own people, the people of Judah, who are exacting these, this massive interest on us when instead of helping us as the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the Old Testament would have said, instead of helping the poor, they were seeing this as, an, as a time to take advantage of the poor. And so they're taking advantage of them. And so he is losing his mind. He is angry, we are told. Uh, but here's what's interesting is what he does with that anger. Because he doesn't just immediately re react to the anger. I, I like what, how the NEB translates this. It says, after he heard all of these things, at first he mastered his feelings. And then he went to talk to the nobles and to those who had done wrong. First, he mastered his feelings. When I heard that, I thought to myself, if only I could have learned that more quickly or even now, how much heartache and trouble would I have saved myself and others if I had learned when I was emotional and angry about something just to at least first begin to think through it before I decide just to react immediately to it. Does anybody else here have that problem? Yeah, you better shake your I see you looking at your spouse, your child, child looking at the parents. 
So first he kind of, he, he masters that. But that doesn't mean that he's then just doesn't say anything. And it doesn't mean that he's not still bold. No, he still goes and he begins to talk to them. And he says, you cannot do this. Why? Two reasons, he says. First of all, out of a sense of, of what God would call us to do. We know God has not called us to live like this. And then he also appeals to their pride. Because he says, not only by, by doing this, also other, our enemies are, are mocking us because we are not taking care of the poor amongst us. Instead, we are simply taking advantage of them. And so he says, this cannot be. Now, at this point, it gets kind of confusing, and I don't want to get all into the translation of it and all this, but let me just say there's some confusion as to whether or not Nehemiah here has also been exacting interest from folks or whether he hasn't been. It's really, it's hard to know. Or whether he's just kind of talking in a royal we when he says we have to stop doing this. It's hard to know, but here's what's important, which is at this point, he has again, as he did in the first chapter, remember, he has this sense of corporate confession. This is so important. That when he sees what's being do, done and what is wrong, he doesn't just kind of feel guilty about it and just kind of say, oh man, we're horrible and let's just stop doing everything. Rather, he turns, right? Repentance. He turns and they begin a new way. And he says, okay, from now on we can no longer do this. And the noblemen, right? And the noble women perhaps are all like, yes, we agree. Let's do this. And here's Nehemiah, man, the guy is smart, because he doesn't just say, oh, I'm glad we're all on the same page. He says, oh, I'm so glad you said this. Priests, let's come in and let's make an oath before God and everyone of what you have said. Right? As someone said, Nehemiah is incredibly realistic. I think he's probably learned because he's remembered. Remember this last week when he cast the vision or two weeks ago and everyone said, let's do it. And then last week they're like, this is a horrible idea. And he said, oh, I know you guys are fickle, so let's make this oath before everybody. And sure enough, they make this oath before everybody. And it seems then, almost as a sense of wanting to know the response and how this has changed him, Nehemiah then begins to describe how he was being incredibly generous uh, to the people of Judah. In this way, he could have asked for a tax on the people in order for him to have food. But he says, no, I, I didn't do that. Instead, I fed 150 people as well as other visiting dignitaries every day out of the money which I already had. I did this out of my fear of God, which is not less about being afraid and more about saying this is who God wants us to be. And because he says, I knew already what a burden the people were under. One of the things that this tells us, of course, is that Nehemiah was a man of means, he had resources, obviously, right? And he decided to use those resources for the furthering of God's kingdom, to look for those who are struggling and in order to give them a sense of hope, in order to give them, quite frankly, food, to stop take money, taking money away from them. It's a, it's a bit of a 19-verse, I think, chapter, uh, but, but it feels a little shorter than the other ones, to me at least. Maybe that's because the other ones felt like they were like 40 verses long. But it feels like there's not necessarily tons, in one sense, to say about this passage. And yet, as I was thinking about it, and I know I've said this probably almost every Sunday, it does feel like this particular chapter is especially geared towards many of us. 
Here's what I mean. It, it seems to me that what Nehemiah is doing here is he's talking to people who are laser-focused and have an ability to be hyper-focused on one thing, on one task, on one mission. See, the best leaders, it seems to me, and the best organizations, the best churches, they know exactly what their mission is. They know exactly what the task is, and they are able to focus right on that. You see, if you're not a good leader, a good church, a good organization, you're just kind of scattered. You're trying to do everything, and we know people like this, right? And you're just, oh, let's do this, and then it's, like, oh, no, this is a great, oh, let's do this. And guess what never gets done? Anything. Right? But a good leader, a good church, a good organization, they know exactly what they're about and they, keep, they just keep hammering at that and they keep going towards that. And that is good and right. But there is a weakness to those who are able to be so laser focused, so sharp on what their goal and their task is. And that is this, is that they oftentimes are in danger of not being able to see everything that is actually going on, which means almost inevitably there are those who are left behind. See, Nehemiah is a very effective leader, and he knows that he wants to rebuild this wall. He feels very strongly this is exactly what God has told me to do, and we're going to keep hammering at it. We're going to keep going at it. We're going to rebuild this wall, and nothing is going to get in the way. And in the midst of that, he forgot that those people who were working on that wall also had a family. That those people who were working on that wall had left that family. That those people who were working on that wall actually had families. That those people who were working on that wall had families who needed to eat. Right? Now, Nehemiah had a great vision. It had been given to him by God. But he needed to stop to pay attention and to hear and to see what was going on. See, and, and leaders oftentimes forget that. We see it as well in the book of Acts. Maybe you know this, the Genesis, the birth of the deacons. Do you remember this story? They're the apostles. They're doing a great job. They're teaching, they're preaching, they're healing. It's all wonderful. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And then all of a sudden, a group of people come and say, hey, hey elders, this is great. Apostles, what you're doing is good stuff. But there are widows who are being left behind. And so what do they have to do? They have to stop what it is that they are doing for a moment at least to be able to say, okay, let's figure out how to make sure that no one gets left behind in the midst of this. Now, it's also important to see this. There's three things I want you to see just briefly about this. Number one, the wall that was being rebuilt and the preaching and teaching and healing that the apostles were doing, those were good things. It's not like they were doing bad things. These were good things that God had told them to do. Point number two, they didn't stop just because there were people who were saying people are being left behind. The apostles, guess what they kept doing? Not a trick question. They kept teaching. They kept preaching. They kept healing. Guess what Nehemiah did, right? Nehemiah could have said, oh, geez, you're right. Everybody, let's just change it all. Let's just stop, 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 stop hammering. Right? I don't know if they were hammering. But stop doing whatever it is that you're doing. Let's just stop. But they didn't, did they? No, they said, okay, let's keep going. But here is what they did. Here is what both of these leaders did. 
They got more people involved in what it was that they were doing. This is what a good leader will do. When he or she is, they're, they're going forward or a good church, and they say, this is a good mission, and then someone says, oh, yeah, but what about these people? They say, oh, that's right, and you should do something about that. This is a pastor's favorite kind of passage right here, right? You should do something. The apostle said, okay, that's great. Deacons, you guys start taking care of them because we're going to keep doing this. Nehemiah said, you are so right. All right, nobles, those of you who more than likely were not really a part of this overall mission, they were just like, <laughs> how can we make riches off of this wall? All of a sudden, Nehemiah helped them to see the role that they could play in being able to fulfill this mission. It may not, they may not have been picking up rocks, but all of a sudden then, they weren't just loaning for great amount of interest. They were helping people. They were lending. Perhaps they were just being generous and just giving to them. They were a part of the mission. So all of a sudden, they began to include more people. And yet they continued to be about the mission that they knew God had called them to. So people who are laser-focused on their vocations, on their success, on their careers, on church work even— always have to be willing to stop from time to time and listen. Now, here's another thing that I want you to notice here. This is a little more dangerous for me, so I will walk gingerly. Which is usually the same kind of people who are laser-focused on their jobs, on their careers, on success. It's all fine. Can sometimes also be the same people who are laser-focused on their families, and oftentimes what I mean by this is on their immediate families. I want you to hear verse 5. Don't put it up yet. Verse 5, the protesters are saying, hey, what's going on here? Our fellow people are not caring for us. And then, this is how the message paraphrases it. Let's see what he says. He says, look, we are the same flesh and blood as our brothers here. Our children are just as good as theirs. What are they saying? What they're saying is, hey, our, our flesh is the same. They're supposed to care for us, and our children are as good as theirs, and our children should be just like, you know, just like their own children. One of the things that, uh, that I notice is that, and, and we do a great job of this, so please hear me before, uh, before I receive one of those emails that I throw in the trash, which is this, that, just a total joke. So you can put that down. One of the things that we see is, we are very good at caring for our children. People in our community are really good for caring for our children. If you don't believe me, and this is not a political statement, so don't be upset about this, but, you know, go around now in Zionsville, right? What's the, what's the three-letter word that we see with an exclamation? Yes! Vote yes on the referendum, right? Vote, vote yes on the referendum that is, that is going to help our kids. And that's all fine. I have no problem with you voting yes. That's great. Vote yes. I don't care, right? But, I mean, I care. But we, we, we like that, and that's good. We want to make sure that our kids have opportunities. We want to make sure our kids have good education. We want to make sure that they're fed. We want to make sure they have shelter. That's all fine and good until or unless... We forget that it isn't just about our children. And that actually, we should be thinking not just about my children, but about all of our children. 
which reaches beyond Zionsville, beyond Carmel, beyond, you know, northern Indianapolis, but it goes on into the city of Indianapolis, into the state of Indiana, into the country and across the globe. We will always, those of us who are laser focused and like to accomplish things, we will almost always in one form or fashion be tempted to begin to focus so much on my kids and their success that we forget about our role and the reality that all of these kids should in one form or fashion also be seen as being our kids. But if we don't slow down, if we don't stop from time to time, if we don't listen, if we don't hear the cries, then we will never be reminded of that reality. See, one of the roles of the church, it seems to me, is that for every person who comes into this building, and I would suggest even those who just drive by the buildings or those who are in the communities around us, one of the great opportunities that we get to do is to stop a community that tends to be laser focused and whatever they're doing and force them to stop, to listen, to hear the cries, to remember that those children are our children and to ask what God would have us to do differently because of what we are hearing. This is exactly what Nehemiah does. One of the things I've said ever since we, we put in the speed bumps, you'll remember this uh, maybe on the east parking lot, ever since we did that, it was this image for me of the call of the church that we are to be a speed bump in our society, right? Because what was happening, people from 116th, where I never know where I am, people from 116th were driving this way, and guess what's at 116th in Michigan? A stoplight. Guess what people who are laser-focused hate? Stoplights, right? And if you're going south on Michigan, you're like, oh, I got this. And boom, you're driving right across the parking lot, right? And they were zooming across the parking lot in order to get down there to Michigan until we put in those speed bumps. <laughs> it was awesome because all of a sudden, because most people who are laser focused also have a car that they're laser focused on and they didn't want to ruin that car. And so what do they have to do? They had to slow down, they had to slow down dramatically. And as soon as you slow down, you begin to pay attention more. And when you begin to pay attention more, all of a sudden, whereas before you may not have seen the children, now all of a sudden you see the children and you begin to slow down. And you begin to say, well, that child, I may not have even seen that child, but that child's probably important. And it slows everything down. And everything begins to change. And we have to be a place where we are not afraid to slow down from time to time. And those of us who are so laser focused in order to ask what else is going on and who is being left behind. And we see that here at ZPC. I see it every Thursday afternoon or Thursday evening and Friday uh, right around noontime. Because every Thursday night and Friday around noontime is when we open up our food pantry. And do you know what happens during the week? Do you know what? And I'm doing, you know, I mean, I'm doing... God's work here. We're going good mission here, right? This is good stuff. But you know what I forget usually? I forget that there are people around us who are hungry. But every time when I see, I'm like, why are, it's like I forget every time. I don't know why. Why are all those cars over there? Oh! 
Or every time that we host, usually now I think it's like, what, three weeks out of the year that we host Family Promise, the homeless, right? That's, a, that's particularly difficult for me. I don't, I don't like to see it. One of, the, one of the things is even during the day when they're not here, I walk in and guess what I see? At the table, oftentimes I will see, we have these tables in the gathering space where they eat, I will see a high chair. And you see a high chair and you just think, you forget. It is so easy to forget that that child is our child. That that child is struggling. So we provide these opportunities. We do it as well when we go out to places, Kentucky, you know, Shepherd, straight up. We, we, we see that. And one of the greatest speed bumps that I've ever experienced in my time here at ZPC, or quite frankly in my lifetime, is the trip I took last June to Uganda. It was a chip trip I took to um, um, to see this, this, this group that we've kind of been, been growing, this orphanage that our partnership has kind of been growing slowly but surely over the last couple of years. And it's called Otinawa. And the, the reason that it started was because of the Lord's Resistance Army. Maybe you've heard of the Lord's Resistance Army. I talked about this some in June when I got back. And uh, it was led by Joseph Coney. It was a vile group um, that would, would kind of come in oftentimes and raid the villages, the small villages in northern Uganda. Uh, and then would... Um, uh, oftentimes would, be, would, would murder uh, folks and then would bring in, one of the worst atrocities, bring in kids to be a part of the army. Um, it's just this, this, this horrible group. And so, so all of a sudden then back in 2002, 2003, they had 78 kids and they took those 78 kids and they kind of, they rescued them, right? And they, they, they had this makeshift orphanage. You can see here, I took a picture. I showed this to you last time. As you can tell, I'm not really a great photographer, but um, so that's, that was the girl section. Obviously it looked different back then, but, but they had this. And so they were there for a while. And then all of a sudden they, be, they, they were getting so big that they had to start a whole nother orphanage or they were building a new one. But then they heard that Joseph Coney was on his way. And so within a matter of hours, they had to pick up all the kids then. They had to take them into Lyra to the larger city, and they did so. And, and then they, they, they've been growing over these last several years, couple of decades, but they've been able to take these kids out and, and to love them and care for them. And, and so when I was there, I mean, I was able to see all of these things, and they're now they're partnering with schools and helping kids who are in the bush be able to come in. But, but here's something that, that, that I walked in. I forget, I've been there for three or four days, and I went into one of these schools, and I showed you this picture in June, but I want you to see it again because I love this picture. Because when I saw these kids taking naps, I immediately thought of my four-year-old Liesl. And you know what she used to love doing? Was taking naps. And when I saw them like this, especially this girl on the right-hand side, I thought of Liesl. And I said, this is our kid. And it stopped me in my tracks. Part of our role as a, as, as a body of Jesus Christ is to force us to stop at times to remember those who are being left behind, to remember that they are our children and to say, how can we change the world? How can we change things to build for God's kingdom? This morning, we have the opportunity just to hear briefly from a woman named, a young woman now named Patricia, who was an orphan a long time ago with Atinawa. And so, Patricia, if you'll come forward now, and um, I would love to just ask you a, a couple of questions. Because I think it's important for people to be able to hear this story. You know, oftentimes, 
we see things. I think I saw something about this on 60 Minutes like a decade or so ago about this particular group. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep talking for a moment now as a child leaves. And so um, before you begin, um, I would love, though, to be able to hear, uh, if you would, can you share a little bit more about what happened when you were a kid and, and the Lord's Resistance Army? Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. I'm really so glad to be with you today here. And I'm happy to thank God for really delivering me from all situations that I was in. When I was a child at the age of five years old, there was this group of Lord Resistant Army being led by the Joseph Kony. They were doing a lot of bad things in northern Uganda. Most of their things was like killing, stealing people's things, raping women, and a lot of things that they were really doing. And they always wait, like, when it is like there is no rain, that day they won't come because they know that people will leave their houses and they go and hide in the bushes, in the nearby bushes. So when they come and open the house, they wouldn't find anyone inside. So they wait when, like, it is rainy. And in Uganda, sometimes we have rainy season and dry season. So rainy season, it's really, that is the worst season that at, at that time. I was five years old, they came when it was really raining, so every, they came at night, in the middle of the night, barge into our house, I was with my younger brother and my parents, and that was a night I will never ever forget in my life, because that night, it was a night that made me to become an orphan, and it will never be changed for the rest of my life. They entered into our house, killed my parents in front of me, I was taken with them, we went in the bush, and in the bush we went through a lot of torture. You are made to carry the things that they have stolen from, like from people, carry heavy loaded, made us to dance on thrones, they remove your, your sandal, no sandal. And when we went in the bush, there is a lot of punishment they were giving people. Actually, those people, they're really so heartless in that some of them, they, a part of the torture they put is like, they put a hot saucepan with the water boiling in it and they just picked anybody they dumped inside there. Another thing is like for us, the kids, if like you have your best friend, they feel like you are so much close to that person. The only thing they do is to force you to kill that person. In that, so that they instill the bad habit in you. So that when you come back next time to raid like the village and when you grow up, you grow up with that dark heart, you don't have mercy for anybody, you are too heartless. And whenever you come to raid a village, even if you get a relative or anyone, like for me who witnessed my parents being killed in front of me, I won't have any mercy for anybody. So I will have that heart of killing and just stealing people's things, becoming heartless. And really, I thank God because the leader was in Southern Sudan. And if you reach Southern Sudan, it is really very hard for you to come back. But I thank God I was not able to reach Southern Sudan. We were still on our way to Southern Sudan. But the government soldiers came and they started firing bullets. And my friend that was older than me, she was seven years old. We were able to run back and we didn't know the direction of home, but we kept asking people because like when we were at home, we used to see like the sun is coming from the east. But when you reach the booth, I saw like as if the sun is coming from the north. But I really thank God that we were able to make our way home. And after reaching home, it was a different thing altogether. I didn't have anybody to support me. I was only left with my grandma. 
And even the community kids, like the kids that were there in the village, they never wanted to associate with me because there is a way they call you like the blood of Joseph Coney has entered into you in that it's like you are now an evil person. They fear staying with you. I, I wasn't able to play with my fellow kids. I wasn't able to associate with anyone. I'd lost hope completely. And I became so lonely. So whatever comes into my mind, I, I was only praying for death to come and take my life away. Because I really fell out of place. But I thank God for rescuing me. And so you were rescued, and you went to Otinawa, right? And so what was, that, what was that like? And if you don't want to share anymore, you don't have to. The most important thing that happened in my life, I kept praying because I believe God says that even before we were born, he has plans for us. Mm. That one in Jeremiah 29, 11. I thank God that after good years, I was able to be brought to Otinawa, which is an orphanage. And when I came to Otinawa, that's where like, I felt I was at home. My hope came back because I got many kids that were in the same situations like me. And in Otinawa, I was able to get good education. I was able to go to church. I was able to get free medical education, clothing that I couldn't get at home. Because when I was at home, we could go on empty stomach. My grandma was unable to provide for her things. But I thank God when I reached Otinawa, I felt like I have somebody to call a father. I have somebody to call a mother. I'm really so grateful for my sponsors because even if they don't know me, through my pictures that I brought here, somebody was able to take me up as her own kid, his own kid, and I was able to get all those th good things in Otinawa just because of my sponsors. And I treat them as my parents right now, though I haven't seen them, but I'm so much grateful for them. Through the scholarship program in Otinawa, I was able to graduate. And at, at the moment, I'm working in a nearby hospital as a, a midwife. I'm so much grateful for my sponsors. There is nothing I can do to them. But for the good things they have done to me, I pray God give them good health and continue blessing them for the heart they have taken to take care of me. I am who I am today because of my sponsors. And so Otinawa has helped Patricia, and, uh, and she's now studying to become, uh, she's a nurse now and becoming a gynecologist uh, in the future, correct? That's what you're continuing to do uh, in order to be able to help and uh, to bring more restoration uh, in the country of Uganda. Patricia, thank you for sharing that with us. Can we kind of welcome and thank Patricia for being so honest? And do is turn this on. One of the things 
that we have opportunities here to do is to stop as painful as it may be and to remember and to hear the cries and then to say, what might we do to join in with what God is doing? We have opportunities here and we have done it and we will continue to do it to make a difference in people's lives, to change people's lives, not for our glory, but for God's glory. And so Patricia, there's really nothing else that I can say at this point, and so I'm not going to. But thank you for sharing that, and thank you for reminding us of the opportunities that we have each and every day to remember that it's not just that our children is all of our children. And so as one of our covenant children, can I call you that, Patricia? We love you, and we thank you for being here. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. God, you come to us in the midst of our brokenness and the brokenness of this world. We don't always know how to respond, but we do know that you call us to respond. So may we do so this day. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. So this morning, sisters and brothers, we are reminded.